Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we examine your word, uh, we are encouraged to do just this, to pray. And so we ask that you stir our hearts, um, not exclusively based off our needs, but primarily based off of your beauty and your power and your awesome greatness. We ask that this message from your word accomplish all you set forth for it to do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, In a summary of the state of the church in 2020, the Barna Group found in surveying the American church that 69%, that's roughly seven out of every 10 Christians, pray weekly. And initially, you might have the same reaction as I do, that that seems like a good grade. C's get degrees is what one of my college professors always said. My mom didn't agree with that, but my professor offered me that helpful piece of advice. But when we begin to think on this more, what seems to be a passing grade can kind of slip, can slip away into a state of kind of despair and, and sorrow. Because what they didn't say is seven out of ten Christians pray. That could have been maybe nebulous enough to be encouraging. They didn't say seven out of ten Christians pray daily pray frequently or pray often. They said seven out of 10 Christians pray weekly, which means of that seven out of 10, some of those people qualify as a statistic, spending just as much time talking to the creator of the universe as they do dragging their trash bins to the curb on a weekly basis. As I shared at our missions night last week, when uh, my wife and I were visiting our missionaries in the Middle East earlier this month, our hotel was located conspicuously close to the loudspeaker. And beginning at 5 a.m., that loudspeaker broadcast one of the four prayers, the Islamic prayers, that faithful Muslims recited daily, four times. How often do you pray? You see, even if you pray every meal and that's your designated prayer time, you're still not praying as much as Muslims pray to a false god. In contrast to this statistic, the average American spends 147 minutes a day on social media platforms. Every minute, 35 million statuses are updated as individuals offer to the world, opening up their lives, their thoughts, their aspirations, their needs, and concerns to a watching world. And the two inverse trends of these statistics are telling because it's not that we are any more private than we used to be. It's not that we are any more self-sufficient. It's not that we are any more less known. It's not that we are any more competent or have any other or any less lack in our lives. In fact, what this shows is that we all need to assess what it is we're seeking in life and to whom we are speaking in life. Everyone is open to someone. Everyone is talking to someone. But who are you speaking to? This very issue is what prompted Jesus' largest teaching on prayer in the Gospel of Luke. Hopefully you have your Bibles already open to Luke chapter 11, which is where we will be today. And central to his message in the text we have today is that same assessment in each of our hearts. What are you seeking in your life? And to whom are you speaking to help you reach that end? 
And our main point today is going to be this. It's going to be that Christians should pray eagerly. There's no number attached to it. We should simply pray eagerly. Why? Trusting the Father to meet our needs and to display his love for us. Christians should pray eagerly, trusting the Father to meet our needs and to display his love towards us. We're going to encounter this in three parts in Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. First, in verses 1 through 4, we're going to encounter Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. And in doing this, we're going to see the form of prayer, examining what the content of our prayers should be. Then in verses uh, uh, 5 through 10, we're going to encounter motivations to prayer. And there we're going to see the fervor of prayer. And then lastly, that theme of motivation is going to continue in verses 11 through 13 as we see the father of prayer. The form of prayer, the fervor of prayer, and the father of prayer. Let's begin by examining the context to our passage today in Luke 11 verse 1. Now when Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so one thing Luke, as a writer, emphasizes more than any other gospel writer in scripture is Jesus's prayer life. Actually, in the 11 chapters we've spent in Luke, of which Jesus isn't born uh, initially right away, Luke has drawn our attention to Jesus's prayer life six times now. And this is rather astonishing because, yes, Jesus was fully man. We're gonna celebrate that in the incarnation and advent, which is gonna start here in a couple weeks. But more than being fully man, he was also fully God which meant if there was anyone in all of human history who could have had a pass on their prayer life, it would have been the one who was in himself, God. And yet Luke is intentionally pointing us to the fact that Jesus, as the perfect man, knew his need for daily reliance upon the Father, and he drew into that in prayer. As readers of the gospel, Jesus' prayer life should not be lost on us because it was not lost on Jesus' disciples. This is what they're noticing at this point. There's one disciple, we don't know who it is here, but he noticed that Jesus's prayer life was not like anyone else's prayer life. As the disciples are seeing and hearing Jesus pray, they're being taught something about prayer. The disciples are learning a theology of prayer by witnessing Jesus's prayer life. Do you realize the same is true for you? how your kids hear and see you pray, your roommates, your community group members, your friends, it reveals your theology, your understanding of God for better or for worse. John's disciples prayed like John. That's what we see there. And why do they pray like John? Because John taught them. But what this disciple observed is that Jesus in his prayer life was distinct, even from John and his disciples. And he realized that there was something so profound there that it would be their privilege if just as John taught his disciples to pray, Jesus would teach his disciples how to pray. Which means we should listen to this text not only because it is God's inspired word, sufficient for us, necessary for life and godliness, but we should listen to this text because here we see the world's greatest prayer teach you how to pray. In fact, it's so intimate that Jesus begins his teaching with this, when you pray. In other words, Jesus is not merely telling us how he prays, but he is after your experience. He is after your prayer life. While church history has often called these first four verses here the Lord's Prayer, it is quite simply 
the disciples' prayer. It is our Jesus and Savior sweetly stooping to our level and teaching us how to pray. And so what would Jesus want you to know about prayer? This is where we find our first point this morning, the form of prayer. Read with me verses one through four. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to church frequently. I went to a Christian school. And so I heard and witnessed prayers consistently throughout my life. And so it wasn't until I was in campus ministry decades later that I would finish reading the Bible with a student. I'd say, hey, would you like to close us in prayer? And I ever heard this response. I I don't know how to pray. I, I don't even know how to talk to God. And what's interesting is if we look back at that statistic of seven out of 10, it's not only those people who do not have a background with the church who apparently wrestle how to pray, but there are Christians, perhaps me and you, who don't know how to pray. But if that's you, take heart, because Jesus wants to teach you this today. In fact, a great starting point is to memorize this prayer. Together, as we conclude our service in corporate confession, we are going to join with one another and pray this prayer. You'll have an opportunity to apply this today. This text here is meant to be a template. When you don't know where to start, if you've wondered what does it look like to pray to the God of the universe, pray this, 36 words of infinite value. 36 words that Jesus gives his people. As I prepared for the sermon this week, I made it a goal to pray this prayer every day. And you know what happened? I was perfect, I was sinless, my wife said I was the greatest husband I've ever been, and I wrote this sermon in 10 seconds. No. But what happened is, as I prayed this prayer, I found it harder and harder to confine myself to these 36 words. Because as I began to pray this, I realized this prayer was changing me. It was aligning my heart and my words with God's heart and his words. You see, the goal, even when we have scripted prayers later on that we recite together, the goal is not to give you scripted, rote, static prayers. God's not impressed that you can memorize statistics. When you get to heaven and you can recite, you know, Tom Brady's passing statistics, that is worth the exact same as you being able to recite the Lord's Prayer if recitation is the only goal. But Jesus gives us this template. Why? Because this is how we learn. And what we encounter in this prayer are three categories which cause our prayer life to soar. They get momentum and a life of their own. And I don't know if this was intentional, but when Rob was praying earlier, I heard in his pastoral prayer each of these points of emphasis modeled right here from the Lord's Prayer. That was more than 36 words. And it was a blessing to our church and glorifying to God. So what are these three categories that should influence your prayer life? Well, first, when we pray, we pray for God's supremacy. We pray for God's supremacy. There's two requests, two imperatives that Jesus opens this with. The first is hallowed be your name. 
The second is come, kingdom of the Father. Hallowed and come. And so what does it mean to be hallowed? Hallowed means to be consecrated. That's not particularly helpful at this point. What does it mean to be consecrated? It means to be set apart, to be reserved, to be distinct. Like those pieces of fine china that you're maybe going to pull out for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, they have been hallowed. They're treated differently, distinctly from the rest of your Ikea plates. If you're a sports fan, you know hallowed places. There are hallowed places in sports. To play golf in Augusta, Georgia is not to say, I played golf. It's to say, I played Augusta National. There are places like Fenway Park, Lambeau Field, in which the Titans come in and eviscerate all that is hallowed in that space. These places are distinct, unique, supreme, set apart from everything else. And you see, experientially, that's in our own lives, we often get this relationship backwards when it comes to prayer. We start with ourselves and our needs. But your needs do not by nature lead us to prayer. How do we know this? Everyone has needs. And yet even inside the Christian church, only seven out of 10 Christians pray. You show me a human without a need and I will show you someone who doesn't exist. You see, it's not the presence of our needs which lead us to pray, but instead it's the presence of a God so supreme, so distinct, so infinitely hallowed that an awareness of him means that any lack, any want, any comfort we have in life is exceedingly met by the supremacy of all that he is. Prayer starts with a big God. And Jesus knows you need to be reminded of this daily. So that verb hallowed is a passive imperative, which means that we're not making God any more set apart. God's glory, his distinction, his supremacy is not conditional upon you. That would be a weak, measly God. You see, God is not great because he is praised. Celebrities are great because they're praised. You could be the world's worst actor in the world, but if enough people get behind you and praise you, guess what? You're gonna get all those gigs. You know why Disney keeps making trash movies? Because y'all keep watching them. They're great because they're praised. Superstars are great because they're praised. God is praised because he is great. He is supreme because he alone is supreme. When we pray, Father, hallowed be your name, we are not asking God to be any more great, any more supreme, any more glorious, because he cannot be. If God could be greater tomorrow than he was today, then our God changes, then our God had a lack, and there is no lack in the glory of God the Father. So what are we praying when we pray this? Instead of saying, God be great, like he's Santa Claus, and if enough people get together and get excited about Santa Claus, his sleigh flies and we all get Christmas, but he's conditional upon us. Instead, when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are saying, may you be set apart in my heart and in my life in such a way that it lines up with the reality of who you are in the cosmos. That you are hallowed. Jonathan, last week in the pastoral prayer, 
prayed the song of the Israelites when God redeemed them out of slavery in Israel. And notice their words in Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like our hallowed God? No one. Now, what does this have to do with prayer? This is Jesus' leading point. This is what he opens up, his first word on what it means to pray. Why do we need to be so concerned that we set apart his supremacy above all things? Because if God is not supreme in your prayer life, something else will be. If God is not supreme in your prayer life, someone else will be. And this will lead to chaos. Why? Because no one is holy like our God. No one is supreme like our God. This leads to a problem that the Apostle James gets at in James 4. Listen to this. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own supreme passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, that is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what does this mean in the context of prayer? It means that prayer primarily driven by the supremacy of self produces only strife and pain. It puts us at odds with God for we want to be as Adam and Eve were in Genesis 3, supreme. It puts us at odds with me and you because when we come together, we are fighting over the scarcity of supremacy. If you are supreme, I by nature am not. Therefore, make me supreme. I will quarrel, I will fight, I will kill, I will murder. Why? Because supremacy is at stake. But in scripture, our problem reveals our need. If our own supremacy is what causes fights and quarrels, then the solution is to find somebody else to be supreme. And here, this is where Jesus goes. It is the hallowed father who is supreme. To align the whole of our hopes with God's glory, to remind ourselves that he and he alone, his passion, his friendship is key, then we find grounds to pray profound prayers, peace-producing prayers, problem-solving prayers, contentment-building prayers. And what are those called in this text? They are called kingdom prayers. That's the second request. Your kingdom come. If God is so radiant in and of himself, then our greatest hope is not only that God would be seen as distinct, but that the distinctions of who God is, his rule, his dominion, his presence, would invade more and more of our daily life. 
To pray for God's kingdom to come is to align all of our hopes with the greatness of God's glory and his plan to renew all things. To pray that God's kingdom would come reorients our whole experience in this world. I was talking with Joe, who goes here, who used to be a logger. And I remember I was whining once about the price of timber and two by fours. And everyone else I've talked to has whined about it. But I talked to Joe and he says, I am so glad for this. Because I have worked in the timber industry, side by side with loggers, and they make nothing, and they're finally getting their due. You see, when we begin to pray from the perspective of God's kingdom, our expectations change. We're introduced to desires that are contrary to what seems best according to worldly standards. Start your prayers where Jesus calls you to. Pray that the Father is magnified above all things, that he would be magnified in your own heart, in your own life, in your own worldview. Pray for the supremacy of God to reign in your life. Second, we pray for God's provision. Read with me verse three in the first part of chapter four, or first part of verse four. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. Now, after reading this, I want to read another prayer, a prayer uttered in Proverbs chapter 30, verses seven through nine. And I want you to hear what the wise man in Proverbs 30 is praying for. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. A rich savings account and a beautiful wife. Warm weather and my political party. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do you think that Jesus perhaps had this in mind when he opened up the prayer saying, hallowed be your name? You see, if you take those beautiful fine china that you reserve for Christmas and you begin to serve toddlers, things on it and they cover it with ketchup and bring it in their room and mark up on it for tea time, you've profaned the plate. To take what is hallowed and to profane it is what this prayer is meant to prohibit against. That that name would remain hallowed. And what's the prayer of this God-fearing wise man? What is the solution to profaning God's name? it is that he would always be in hungry reliance upon God. Why? Because to be full is to wrestle with the temptation to forget. You don't have to drive around Missoula very long to see a bumper sticker that says, know your farmer. Have you seen that? Know your farmer. And the point is, it's a movement of people to cause to be more mindful of where our food comes from. We live in an agricultural state, but everyone knows Missoulians are fake Montanans. And so if you ask my kids where their food comes from, this week they'd probably say Chick-fil-A. But any other week, they'd probably just say the store. The store is where we get our food. And experientially that's true, but it's not fully true, is it? You see, the point is, and what this bumper sticker reminds us of, is that we ought to know what we're eating by knowing who's in charge of our food. If you're eating meat, what is it fed? How many chemicals and pesticides How far has it traveled? Brothers and sisters, if it's that easy to forget that our food comes from an earthly farmer, 
how much more easy is it to forget that everything in life is provided by our heavenly Father? With our calendars planned out through next year, our grocery store orders pre-programmed on our phone, and our lives tracked out from graduation to internship and beyond, we often find ourselves as the ones who say, who is the Lord? I can get what I need. So-and-so can provide it to me. The university can accredit me. The job can affirm me. My paycheck can sustain me. We are the ones who profane the name of God by forgetting it entirely. We think that we might earn and keep to sustain our own lives. And in times, this produces either the comfort of arrogance or the paranoia of sobriety. When things are good, the comfort of arrogance washes over us and we forget entirely that anything comes from beyond us. That we are all that we need. But then there are times where food is sparse and the praise of man is thin. And instead of eating daily bread, we eat the bread of anxious toil. For there is the paranoia of sobriety that we cannot control even the crops. We can't control what other people think. But here is the heart posture of prayer. Everything we need is given to us by God, our Father, and our prayer is to have it daily. You see, many of us prefer the well-stocked pantry of idolatry over the empty table of daily faith. But this is what takes and makes a change from weekly prayer to Christian prayer. Christians pray daily because your needs are, say it with me, daily. Weekly prayer stems from a weak God. Daily prayer sees a God hallowed enough to provide. And so what do we need? What are we praying for in our provision? Well, two things here. We see both physical provision and spiritual provision. We pray that he would give us each day our daily bread. Do you see that repetition? It's not just give us this day. It's each day and not just our bread, but our daily bread. What's the point? Pray daily. Every day. From Maslow's pyramids, right? Is it Maslow? Is that it? Yeah, food, shelter, safety, security, relationships, all those things. Do you realize that anytime you have that, you didn't just stumble into it, you didn't purchase it, God provided it. And Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew, that even when non-believers have that, it's to show them God's great grace to them, just commonly, that there's far more in the gospel than what's provided in the grocery store. But we not only pray for our spiritual needs, we pray for our daily Spirit, or we don't only pray for physical needs, we pray for our daily spiritual needs, which is here defined as a need for forgiveness. You see, it's not only what we lack that drives us to daily prayer, but it's what we possess, the problem of sin. Now remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's not giving an evangelistic sermon on the shores of Galilee. He's talking to his disciples. He's assuming in verse two that he's talking to those who can through faith call God Father. He's talking to believers. Christian prayer is humble prayer. Humble in need for God's grace to save us daily from our sins. That by the merit of Jesus and his abundant provision on the cross, that my sins no longer define me because they already put Christ to death on the cross. Repentance is not an abstract intrusion into the Christian life. It is the daily breath of the believer. You see, perhaps many of us doubt God's goodness to provide because we fail to see all the places where God already daily provides. 
You cannot eat apart from God's provision. You cannot approach him as father apart from the provision of forgiveness through the work of the son. Pray because God alone is supreme enough to give you what you truly need today. And lastly, on account of God's glory and on account of his rich provision in the gospel, we pray for our transformation. Look with me at verse four. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. When was the last time you prayed that you would exceed in giving forgiveness? When was the last time you prayed to sin less? And here Jesus teaches us to ask the Father to perform a heart surgery that actually rends our affections and changes not only our desires, but our interaction with the outside world. Here the person who is consumed with the glory of God's name, who understands the rich provision of the hallowed Father, prays that our lives would look more like Jesus. If God answered every single one of your prayers, what would your life look like? Would it look like the perfect Instagram family? The master provider at the top of his career by worldly standards? Would it look like the fearless, pain-free friend and comforter? Or would you look more like Jesus? Would you leak forgiveness and long for holiness? Put this in another way. Are you frustrated with your current walk with Jesus? Are you stagnant in your worship? Are you paralyzed by anxious fear or easily distracted by worldly comforts? If that's you, consider the words of James again. You do not have because you do not ask. And here, Jesus transitions away from what we're praying to why we're praying it. Here is the motivation in our prayers. And this is our second point this morning, the fervor of prayer. Read with me Luke 11, verses five through 10. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Last week, we were introduced to this theme of hospitality in Luke's gospel in the story of Mary and Martha. Martha was not serving because she was just this type A woman who wanted to do it, but she was serving in part because that's what was culturally expected. The ancient Near East and even today in the Middle East is very much a hospitality-driven culture, far more than even our world here in America. If someone knocked on your door from out of town, you became their host. They didn't ask you. You would automatically assume that burden. And it would have been incredibly shameful, a disgrace on you and your family to not feed them, to not care for them, and to not shelter them. Moreover, because of how communities work in that day, that guest would not have only been your guest, but they would have been the guest of the whole community. 
We see this biblically in a dangerous and twisted sense. If you remember back in the book of Genesis, when Lot invites a sojourner into his house and the whole town shows up at his doorstep. And so knowing this, Jesus gives this parable. There once was a man named Dave. Dave wanted to go visit his friend Kyle. There was no way to communicate. They didn't pick up the phone. They didn't send an email. They didn't shoot him a text. And so Dave left and he walked. And it just so happened that he got to Kyle's house at midnight. Why? Because that's when he got there. And so he knocks on Kyle's door and Kyle wakes up and realizes Dave has been traveling. He's been journeying far, but he has nothing with which to feed Dave. And so what does Kyle do? He's like, I remember walking through the neighborhood and smelling fresh baked bread at my friend's house. So he goes at midnight to his friend's house and he knocks on the door. This friend is a father. He had just spent the last 16 hours of his life putting his kids to bed. (laughs) All was quiet. He tiptoed past his sleeping kids and laid down next to his wife and began to talk about dinner the next day. They just made these loaves. Who did they want to have over? They made plans in the morning to get up and walk the camels together. And then all of a sudden, and you know how that wife looked at this friend. (laughs) The kids are all in bed. Everything's still. And all of a sudden, I need three loaves. And Jesus asks a hypothetical. Who of you, if you were this friend, would hear Kyle at the door and say, go away. If I get up, I'm going to wake up my whole family. I'm going to have to light the lamp. I'm going to open the door and then I'm going to give away the bread that I worked so hard to make. You see, if he spoke this to our 21st century world and Jesus said, who would say this? We would all say, everyone would. But culturally speaking, the expectation is inversed. Who would say this? No one would. Why? Because of the burden of hospitality. Even though Kyle shamelessly showed up, that's what that word impudence means, shamelessly, he showed up at midnight knowing this man was a father, right? They were friends. Knowing his kids were asleep, but also knowing that he had freshly baked bread. Kyle knew that this man would make his prob- Kyle's problem his problem. How many of you have been in the position of this middle friend? How many of you have been Kyle, knowing you need something, but too worried to ask for help? Maybe you're convicted at your own lack of preparedness. Maybe Kyle, which never happens for any husband ever, accidentally forgot that Dave was coming over and should have baked your own bread. Maybe you don't want to be seen as foolish or lacking. Maybe you're worried you'll be seen as an inconvenience And that you're not only asking this friend to get up, but now his wife and his kids and his whole household is involved. And that seems like too much for such a request. Maybe you're worried that you'll be turned down because of the nature of your request or worse, because of the nature of who you are. Or maybe you're so convicted of this that when Dave knocks at your door, you don't even consider what's next. You tell Dave to go find somewhere else because you know you don't have it. But Jesus's point is this, be shameless like this friend. Do not worry about knocking, but knock. Seek the bread 
and ask for it. Throw regard to the wind and seek the Lord. Ask it of him. Three times, Jesus uses three different verbs to hammer this home. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That's pretty powerful. And then what does Jesus do again? He says it all over again in case you thought you might miss the point. To the one who asks, it will be given. To the one who seeks, he will find. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Dear Christian, do you hear the words of your Savior? Do not delay. Do not hesitate to run in the most inopportune times to your father who neither sleeps nor slumbers. Jesus wishes for you to pray with fervor, that is eagerly, far more than even daily. Why? Because living life in this world means there will be many days with Dave. This world points out all that we lack. There will be moments and times where people ask of you things that you feel you could never provide. We often are burdened that everyone needs something from us, expects something of us, and demands something in us, where we are encountering face-to-face our limitations in the need of what seems to be an impossible request. But there is a house where we can go to find exactly what we need. There are 10,000 reasons that could have kept Kyle from going, but he didn't. He went shamelessly. He didn't just knock and stand silently hoping his friend would figure out his need. He sought him out. He asked boldly and he knocked faithfully. You see, many of us wrestle with the idea of God's faithfulness because we worry that he would not be trustworthy. But to see God as trustworthy, you must put your trust in him. Ask for it. Seek him. Find him, knock, and it will be opened to you. Seek the one who says, I am better than this father. You see, the beauty of this teaching is the one who teaches it. We aren't meant to read this story and come away with this wonderful motivation to pray, and maybe you've thought this is it. Well, God's got a lot of big things on his plate. Running the world is pretty hefty. But he wants me to pray and maybe if he didn't hear me, I'll pray again and maybe if he didn't hear me, I'll pray again and maybe he'll just get so annoyed at me that he will answer my prayer and that's how we get along in life. That's how many of their kids think things get solved in my house. But that's not at all the point. In this first parable, it is our eager motivation, not the nature of the friend that is the centerpiece. In fact, just the opposite. We see the contrast and beauty of our God. He didn't just wake his sleeping children in order to meet the needs that came to him in the middle of the night. But this father sent his only son who willingly himself offered himself as the bread of life to those who never asked. The man in this story gave up bread that was his and he had less. Our father never has less. The supreme father we pray to is infinite in his glory. He is never diminished for he in and of himself is blessed eternally. In fact, because our God is Trinity, that is, there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it means even before God created the world, even before Adam issued the first request from his mouth, this God existed in glorious, generous, eternal fellowship. Our God is a giving God because as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they gave themselves eternally, joyfully, in all blessing to one another forever. We have to learn to be generous. 
Our kids have to learn to be generous. Your idols have to learn to be generous. Here is a God who is generous because he cannot not be. Here's a God who delights to share himself with all who asks because he himself is supreme. And this is where Jesus lands the plane in our final point this morning. This is where Jesus focuses us on the father of prayer. Read with me Luke 11, 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so Jesus gives this ridiculous hypothetical, right? What father would do this? The answer is hopefully simple. No father would do this. But if we who are evil, if we who are imperfect, if we who are sinful know how to care for our children in need, how much more does the perfect, blessed, supreme, eternal heavenly father give good gifts to him who ask? And so Jesus has given us three things about ourselves. And maybe you pick that up. We see in the Lord's prayer, two things, that we are sinful and we are needy. We see in this closing passage that even when we think we're crushing it as parents, we are evil. And yet Jesus doesn't end our prayer life and say, hey, like a friend who has an acquaintance who's so obviously far more prepared and better, show up at his house and appeal to his generosity and he might answer you. Instead, he teaches us to end our prayer life, not as friends, but as children appealing to the Father out of his own love for us. So how do we who are sinful, how are we who are needy, how are we who are evil to ever make the leap from friends to children? What a transformation that would be in the source of our request. Look at how James, going back to James 4, describes this. Verses four through 10. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What does God give to our many needs? What does God give to our adulterous hearts? What does God give to our clenched fists and bloody dispositions? He gives more grace. Why? Because he sent his son. And his son is going to give us access to the father that only the son had a right to. In prayer, we draw near to God. Our experiences in this world are changed by coming to one who loves us fully on account of his son. The promise of grace, the promise of forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit itself, from where does it come? It comes from the Son of God who gave his life for us. 
This prayer begins and ends not merely with prayer towards God, but prayer towards our Father. You cannot pray. You cannot solve the problem of supremacy. You cannot solve the experience of hostility in your life. You cannot hope to find the problem of want in your experience if you come as anything other than a child. And Jesus opens here not only the path of prayer, but the father of it. This is the gospel. The good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. He restores us to a father who is delighted to hear from us and to give us exactly what we need. Now this might present a challenge to you. Have you ever prayed for something that didn't get answered? Have you ever been disappointed in your active prayer? Well, remember this son, this perfect son who prayed in Gethsemane to the father and the father's face answer was no. When Jesus says, if it be your will, let me avoid the cross. And what did he receive? Silence. But what did he do? He trusted the character of the father. Does this mean his father didn't care? Does it mean that God the father is evil presenting a scorpion where Jesus asked for an egg? No. In fact, what happens to all of our prayers that are seemingly unanswered? Consider this picture. In the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, and look at what is waiting in glory for us. Revelation 5, 6 through 8. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, that is Jesus, standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. You might be getting wigged out right now. Just stay focused with me, okay? And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What happens to our prayers? They are stored up at the right hand of God, answered in full in the final days. That is to say, all of your prayers, each and every one, is answered in your kingdom come. When Christ the King establishes his rule, we will say all of the answers of God are yes. Yes and amen for all eternity. This is why Jesus ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit as the greatest gift the Father can give. When we pray to the Father, we pray 
in the Son and to pray to the Father through the Son is to pray in the Spirit, which Paul calls in Ephesians 1 verse 4, the guarantee of our inheritance. We pray not only because Jesus teaches us, we pray not only because the Father loves us, but we pray because each day the Holy Spirit reminds us all that is ours in redemption, that in this life our needs are many, but we have a God who has won us to the Father and who delights to hear and help all who are his, and he promises that one day the the bowl spills over. One day, every prayer ever uttered is answered in the kingdom which comes. So waste not the opportunity to pray daily. Seek the Father with an impetuous fervor because he has loved us with an eternal, supreme, and gospel love. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray not by imposing on us a rigid set of words, but teach us to pray by implanting in our hearts through faith the Holy Spirit. Teach us to pray when Dave knocks on our door. Teach us to pray when it seems our needs are many. Teach us to pray when bitterness lurks in our hearts. Teach us to pray when holiness seems to be far from our desires, teach us to pray because you show us the Father. We pray all this in your name, amen.